Hope Church. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5. Last week we started uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, and that's Matthew chapter 5 through 7 that we'll be in here for the next few weeks. Um, so we saw last week Jesus begin by teaching his disciples um, about the blesseds uh, in the first, really first 12 verses. And, you know, many times uh, this has been, you know, misunderstood as like different categories of people. But really Jesus is talking about what he expects to be the character um, of his disciples. Um, and so all of these things should be true of us, poor in spirit, meaning humble, uh, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, and that corresponds um, ultimately to the fruit of the Spirit we see in Galatians chapter 5. Um, there's a pretty awesome parallel with there. We looked at last week, have a little handout. If you didn't get one last week, be sure to get one uh, today and to contemplate uh, those things. We also looked um, in verse 13 about being salt on the earth. And salt, the two primary purposes of salt, one is to be a preservative, uh, to preserve things, to make them good. Um, and another purpose of salt is to give flavor. Uh, we know that salt is an extremely stable compound um, in, in our universe that God you know, has made. Um, but even in, in places where we have naturally occurring salt, there's some places where there are other uh, compounds that are present that are so um, you know, integrated uh, with the salt that it makes it unusable um, for the purposes that we would use it for in terms of giving flavor and in terms of uh, preserving things. And so that salt isn't good for anything except for to put in pathways where you don't want vegetation to grow. And so what Jesus is, is teaching here is, is nothing to do with a salvation or losing salvation, but has to do with our testimony um, in the world. And when people are hypocritical, um, what, what happens? You know, the world will throw them out and trample you know, on them. Um, and so that's, they'll be, as it says here, trampled underfoot by men. And then we'll pick up this morning in verse 14 with being the light of the world. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray um, and ask God to bless our time together in the word. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your many blessings to us, God. Please teach us and encourage us by your word today. Please take away uh, misunderstandings that we may have. Please give us your understanding, your, your clarity, God, your truth, your love. Help us to take that in um, fully and to apply it to our lives um, help us to be people who are not only hearers of the word, but doers also. And we ask it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus compares us um, to light. He says, you are the light you know, of the world. 
Um, but, you know, what sort of light, you know, are we? Ultimately, we're not the sort of light that has a, a power or source within ourselves. We are the type of light that reflects, kind of like the moon at night. Um, and so, you know, we're, Jesus is the, is the star. He is the, the source of all of the light, and we reflect his light and his glory um, in the world. Uh, but if you've been in a place, uh, you know, when we do our ministry in, in Mexico, we're in the, in the mountains there. You know, and you can have a pitch black, you know, sort of night, but then you see these little dots, you know, over the mountains. And if you have a lot of homes in one place, you know, there's a, there's a lot of dots, there's a lot of light, you know, there in that place. Um, and you can see it clearly from a, from a very far distance. And this is the sort of light that we should be. We should be, you know, people, we, uh, you know, that are a light, that we are known as a city that is set on a hill. Um, that cannot be hidden. What that means is that in the world, we should be in such a, such a situation that we cannot hide the light of Jesus. That it is so obvious that we love Jesus, that we love God, that we follow Him, that wherever we go, people will see, hey, there is light. There is light. Because of how we live, because of how we communicate, because of how our attitude is different than that of the world, people will see us and say, there is light. At very minimum, if their perception is not that great, they should at least be able to say, there is something different there. There is something different that is not like what I'm normally accustomed to. To encountering. He says that we do not put a light and put under a basket, but on a lampstand, a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. You remember that if you grew up in, in the church, um, or even if you've heard our kids sometimes singing on a Sunday morning, um, you know, we sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, you know, it's a basket. You know, hide it under a bushel, no. I'm going to let it shine. Uh, you know, we're going to let our light shine because we want to give light. And with that, we, we need to not be ashamed that we are light, that we are called to be light in the world. You can't be ashamed at the source of light and shine a bright light yourself at the same time. We have to be bold and, and loving at the same time, but we need to be desiring to give light, you know, to all who are, here it says in the house, I think we can take that as, you know, all who are around us, all who are within our vicinity. And that we would even be striving to take light into dark places. That we're not content just to be the light where, where things are easy. But we are willing to go into the difficult places to be the light. And then verse 16, it says, let your light so shine before men. That's a command, you know, not to be hidden, but to be visible for the rest of the world. Let your light so shine before men. That's a command. Why? That they may see your good works and glorify you. No, that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. And this motivation is very, very important. When people see our light so we can get an award. So that people will pat us on the back and tell us how good of a job you know, we're doing in the community. So that they'll glorify our Father in heaven. Um, 
this last week, Francis Chan said, you know, when I do um, the sort of work, you know, fighting against human trafficking or speaking out, you know, on different issues, you know, everybody is for that. You know, not, you know, everybody using loosely, obviously the people who are involved in the wickedness aren't for that. But, you know, most common people are, yes, yeah, stop, you know, the human trafficking. Um, you know, we get patted on the back for that sort of thing. But when you talk about sin, when you talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, then opposition comes. People don't like that anymore. And I think that's ultimately the difference in motivation of what we're, what we're doing. You know, are we, are we doing things so that people will pat us on the back and say, good job. And if that's the motivation, we're going to be very hesitant to share the truth about human sin and salvation you know, through Jesus alone, we're going to be very hesitant to talk about those things. But if our purpose is to give the glory to our Father in heaven, then we will, yes, we'll work to fight against human trafficking. I mean, everybody knows that in, you know, we're, we're in that fight as a church, as individuals, but we're also not going to stop there. We're going to continue with we all need Jesus. He is our hope. And he is ultimately the one who can save both the one who was trafficked and the trafficker. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So again, it's, that's, that's the purpose. That's the purpose of it. And then he's going to continue as he's, you know, he's here at the beginning of the message. He's setting up all of his foundational things. So this is the character of the disciple. You know, being that, having that character means that you're going to be salt and light on the earth. That's going to be the result of it. If, if you go through the blesseds or the joyful R's and you are having that sort of character in your life, You'll be salt and light. You don't have to worry about that. You know, I, I think that's, that's sometimes you know, where we mess up. We mess up because we have this desire, okay, I want to be salt and light. But we forget to ask the question, well, how, do you, how are you salt and light? How do you become salt and light in the world? Well, first, you know, the hum- to be poor in spirit, to be humble, to know your need for God and you know, to start to follow Him. Right? But then it continues... You know, mourning over sin, you know, meekness, which is a restrained strength, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to be willing to be persecuted for the causes of God. Like, that's how you are salt and light in the earth. You don't become salt and light by just saying, oh, I want to be salt and light. I mean, that sounds nice. I mean, I mean we all say, hey, I want to be salt and light. But to be salt and light means that we have to have that character that then shows that we are salt and light. That that's actually what we are in the world. Now, so he set that foundation, and now he wants to make a point of clarification in verses 17 through 20. Because remember his audience, it's a mixed audience, where you have a lot of people there that have grown up under the law of Moses. Okay, And so he's going to make a clarification here, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does then teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so there's a couple important things that he's saying here. First, he says he did not come to destroy the law of the prophets, did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, this is important for several reasons, but before we get into those reasons, let's just talk about the difference between destroying and fulfilling. You know, take the conversation away here and just think for a moment about, you know, like a business contract. And in that business contract, one party has agreed to pay the other party a certain amount of money. So, the party that owes the money, there's a big difference between destroying the contract, ripping it up and saying, I don't think I owe you anything, and paying the full amount of the contract. There's a big difference you know, here to pay the full amount of the contract, and then written on the contract is paid in full, contract is no longer in force because it's been paid. All right, there's a huge difference between those two things. Um, so Jesus isn't going to destroy the law and the prophets. He is fulfilling the, re- the righteous requirements of the law. And the prophecies uh, concerning him that are in the law and the prophets, he fulfills those. He says uh, in John 5, 39 through 40, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So he is saying, you know, the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament scriptures are about himself. When he was on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, um, after his resurrection, he explained to them everything concerning himself from the law and the prophets. So obviously, he isn't looking to destroy what is written about himself. He's also not looking to destroy the righteous commandments that God had given. But he is fulfilling everything. In his life lived in perfection without sin. In his life that was a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. In his resurrection, he has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. Praise God. There's also the reality... That the, the heart, the ultimate heart of the Old Testament law, which is to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's still in force. Ultimately, it's not in force under the Old Covenant. It's going to be in force under the New Covenant that's in Jesus. Okay? Now, because he says that it's not going to, none of it's going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. Uh, well, it is fulfilled in terms of the righteous requirements of the law. There's still some on the prophetic side of it that will future be fulfilled when Jesus you know, returns and establishes his kingdom in full. But then he gives this warning, two warnings. One is that those who break the least of the commandments and teach others to do so also will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about people there who have true faith, but 
he is saying, you know, earlier he said there's a great reward to have for those who are willing to suffer persecution for his name. And so there's the reality that if, well, if there's great rewards, then there's also lesser rewards. You know, that yes, there's salvation, and that's the key thing is to be in the family of God. But there is, it does matter how we then live for there, from then, in terms of the rewards that we receive or don't receive in terms of eternity. Now, I do believe that as we see in the book of Revelation with the 24 elders, and they lay their crowns at the feet of Jesus, that that's what we look forward to in earning our rewards, is not to have our own trophy case in heaven that says, oh, look what I've got, now let me look at somebody else and see what they've got. No, it's not for that. But don't you want to have the biggest crown that you can have, the most jewels in that crown as you could have, in order to put back at the feet of Jesus, because that's your thank you for how he has saved us. I mean, don't, I mean, if your life is a thank you, don't you want it to be the biggest thank you that it could be, as opposed to like a little bit of thank you? You know, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, but I didn't take that too seriously, so I kind of just did a lot of what I just wanted to do in life. And wherever I could, I just still tried to be my own king. And thank you for your mercy. Or do we want to say, Jesus, I was so overwhelmed by your gift that I really wanted my life to be lived as a thank you to you. And here it is, all back at your feet. How grateful. How grateful we are for the salvation of Jesus determines so much of how then we live our lives on this earth. Decisions to make, we make, the priorities that we have. Are we grateful? Are we grateful? You know, sometimes I think we're like kids, you know, sometimes, you know, you, 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 you do everything and, and sometimes you get a little bit of thank you, but sometimes, sometimes you get a big thank you. And you kind of just go, hmm, wonder, wonder why or what's going on, but how different are we? So many times when we should just be overwhelmed and desire to give that big thank you, that big love back to God. But notice what he says here, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the righteousness of the Pharisees for most of them, was an external righteousness. It was caring about the perceived righteousness. And so they had all their ways to not really be righteous, but just to, quote-unquote, fulfill the requirements, to be able to check the box. But for most of them, their hearts were far from God. Um, They love money, for example, more than they love God. It's one of the reasons Jesus talks a lot about that in this passage, uh, but they were they were were hungry much more for the things of this earth than they were for the things of the kingdom of God. But even for the best of them, you know, your righteousness would have to be exceeded by them because it's not a works based you know salvation that Jesus is offering us, but a salvation as we know from as it says about Abraham in Genesis fifteen. 
that Abraham believed God it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, and so the, the righteousness that we have to have that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees isn't sourced in ourselves. It's not about like, hey, I've just got to do a better job. It's like, no, I need a, I need a savior. I need a savior. Ultimately. But we do see in this whole passage, there is um, a warning to those who would teach others. James, we have that emphasized again in James 3. Uh, let many of us be teachers, knowing that we shall receive a greater condemnation. Um, like, be careful not to trip other people up, is really a warning that Jesus gives here and in other places in the scripture. Jesus goes as far as to say, it would be better for a stone to be tied around your neck and thrown into the river than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So any position you have, the more authority you have, the more responsibility you have, the, the, the more intently God looks at that in our lives. Yeah, and, and many times the truth of the matter is we want the position or we want the we want the acclaim or whatever it is that comes with that, but that's not really the questions we should be asking. Do we want the responsibility? Do we want the additional greater condemnation, greater standard for how we live and what we teach and what we do? And those are questions that we need to, to be asking ourselves. Praise God, Jesus fulfilled the law and his prophets through his life, his teaching, his death on our behalf, and his victorious resurrection. Now, think about, as he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not uh, make many friends in the religious community when he said these words. They're hearing that, and those who heard it took it back to the rest. Right? I mean, that's... Jesus is preaching against them in a very strong, you know, way. When necessary, you know, I don't believe Jesus was ever like, hey, I want to offend somebody just to offend them. Even if he offends, he hopes that, I think his hope is that they'll repent you know, and he's going to go on in this passage to prove to them how their righteousness is not good enough. So his hope is that they'll repent, but he is willing, just like John the Baptist, who came before him, he is willing to say the hard things to people. He has an authority as he says that. He also has a love as he says that. There is love and truth together. We always have to be reminded, love and truth together. Love by, without truth isn't love, and truth without love really isn't very helpful. Verse 21. Now, before we get into verse 21, for a lot of the rest of the passage, Jesus is going to give these uh, sayings where he's going to say, You've heard it said of old, or to those of old, but I say to you, then he's going to say some other things, and then he's going to have another one. Many times people have looked at these passages um, and said, okay, these are kind of like twofold messages, and then there's some other stuff Jesus says, 
And then he gives another twofold, like a two-part message. And then there's some other stuff that he says. And I don't really understand how all this works together. A much better way to understand this is that these sections have three parts. Okay. The first part is, you've heard it said, of old. Or to those of old. The second part is, but I say to you. And the third part then is practical examples of how to fulfill the higher standard that Jesus gives. Okay? So these are transformative initiatives that you can take to actually practice and to apply what Jesus is teaching. Okay? So let's look at the first one today um, for an example of, of how this works. And a lot of these also tie back to the character attributes that we have here. In this first one, we see character attribute of um, being a peacemaker brought back into it. Verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversaries quickly, adversary quickly, while you're still on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge to hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll be by no means get out there of there until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so the first thing he talks about is the Old Testament, you know, the law of Moses in this case. You, you have heard, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now that judgment is given in the Old Testament, even before the law of Moses, was capital punishment. You know, that was what God had given to Noah after the flood. He said, you know, your people are made in the image of God. I'm summarizing here, but it's basically people are made in the image of God. Therefore, whoever, you know, murders another person, destroys that image, their life should be taken, life for life. That was the judgment that would be given there. But it's clear, you shall not murder. Um, and that is, you know, as well in the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, um, you shall not murder is the correct um, English translation of that. Not you shall not kill. Um, it, that does, it's a culpable homicide, you know, intentional. It's not having to do with self-defense or something of that. That's another subject altogether, not the subject that's being talked about here. So let's stick with, to what's being talked about here. You shall not murder. This is, you know, I, I have a a hatred toward this person and I'm going to intentionally end their life on this earth. It's a, you know, it, it comes from a desire to do this to another person. It's murder. As, you know, what we would call first degree homicide. Okay, first degree murder. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So that was the standard. And then he says, but I say to you, 
Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So Jesus' standard, um, it's a different standard altogether. It is a higher standard, but it's also just a completely different standard. Because he says not to be angry, not to have a, a hatred in your heart towards your brother. Don't do that. So that's his standard. And with that come these other things. This is what accompanies that anger. Uh, Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is basically, it's an Aramaic word. Um, Vines records it as basically a way to say, um, you're stupid. You're you, well, a little different than you fool, it's more like you're, you're an empty head. It's like you have no intelligence. Okay, He's not t- talking about the moral character which um, you fool has to do with. You fool would be like, you're worthless, you're practically subhuman, you're of no moral value. Okay? So don't be angry. Then... Don't say these things that demean other people who are made in the image of God. Don't say to a person you are worthless, you know, intellectually. Don't say to a person you are worthless morally or your value, you know, your value, you are, you know, in some way subhuman. Like, don't do that is what Jesus' instruction is in this case. So then he says, now, now, how do we go about that? And so that's the standard. Not to hold that anger in your heart. Not to say those things about people that we're so prone to say. I mean, when we're mad at somebody, what do we normally do? We want to demean their value. That's how we get, we quote unquote, get even. It's like, we may even know, like, okay, physically it's not a good idea for me to punch this person. Or it's not a, a good idea for me to murder this person, you know, with my hands or with a gun, a knife or whatever. But... I can hurt them and demean their value by calling them an empty head. You know, we have our words for that in English. Or we can value them and say, you devalue them and say that they're worthless in some way. That they're a piece of. And and to diminish them. And Jesus tells us not to do that. I mean, reality is, if we're honest, we've all done that. We've all done that. In our anger, we have sinned. And this is a type of anger that is not controlled. This is, not, this is an anger that's directed um, you know, towards a, a, a person. And it's not focused on the sin. It's, focused on the, it's really just focused on the person. Like, I want to destroy this person. If not physically, I want to be able to do so in my mind or with my words in some way to hurt them. Verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now let's think about that. 
Because Jesus knows that these things usually go both ways. It's not just that we don't like that other person. It's also that other person doesn't like us. So who does Jesus expect to take the initiative? Well, whoever hears his message. It might be a situation where both people need to hear that message and go to each other at the same time. right? But anybody who hears his message and says, hey, my brother may have something against me, I need to go and find out. He says to leave your gift and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, I wonder how churches would teach this today differently. I've never heard um, any preaching that said, uh, hey, we're going to pass the offering today, but if you have something against somebody, don't put anything in. I've never heard that one. I've never heard that one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's radical. That's radical to, to teach that and to preach that, to, to take it so reconciliation so seriously as to say, hey, the church doesn't want your money. That's how we would apply it today. Now, the church at this moment doesn't exist. But, I mean, that's how we would apply that today in the church is... We don't want your money until you made things right with your brother. At, at least you've made an attempt to. Okay, because it's a two-way, Jesus knows here, it's a, it's a two-way deal in that one person can want peace, but you have to have a true peace, you have to have both sides agree for peace, right? Like you can want reconciliation with someone all you want, but if they're unwilling to give that reconciliation, there's a certain point in which you're limited. But there has to be a good faith effort to have that reconciliation or the church doesn't want your money is how we apply it today. Church don't want your money. Now, what does that mean in the, in the, in the church today? Well, what's, I mean, that money has to do with the mission of God. You know, that, that means, you know, missionaries in other places are dependent on that money. People in the church, you know, locally are dependent on that, on that money to pay their, their bills. So reconciliation has to be a pretty big deal if we're going to jeopardize that in order for people to have peace one with another, to strive for peace one to another. That's how seriously Jesus takes it. I think we have to confess that we don't always take it that seriously. That we would have to confess that this morning and say, we don't take it that seriously and we're we're, we're willing to not do our part. To pursue, to pursue peace when we should. Now again, Jesus here is giving general principles. He is not, you know, going, he is not expounding on this, you know, for pages, you know, having to do with a subject like reconciliation. There's, but there are, there are a lot of other things in the scripture that are also the word of God that teach us about that subject. Um, and so one of those principles, again, is as much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. So you're trying, you're striving to live at peace and to make peace where you can. Again, sometimes um, the other party is, is unwilling or unwilling to give it in the level that you can have, you know, true, like, ongoing fellowship. Um, you know, so that's that does happen, but we're to strive for it, certainly. So that's with your brother. 
And then in verse 25, even with adversaries, agree with your adversary while you're on the way, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you that you'll be no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Um, and with an adversary, again, it's, it's, you know, you sometimes might have a case or you might be more in the right, but you still, you know, you're willing to take a hit to have peace because, you know, what he's saying here is, hey, if this gets it to the court, and again, their system at this time is a little bit different than our system, but if this gets to the court, it might not go your way and you might find yourself in a much worse situation than you were before. So sometimes better to swallow your pride and to take your losses and to make peace. To make peace. But there's an application here. Like sometimes if we, are, if we don't make peace when we can and when we should, we still pay until the last penny. We still pay in that relationship. We, we pay through a, you know, a toxic situation in the church or a toxic situation at work our toxic situation in the family like because we missed out on our opportunity to make peace while we could and therefore we have to pay until the last penny and that stinks when that happens but again it does indeed happen and so these are principles that Jesus is is giving us. He could continue on here with other examples of things that we could do, different situations where we need to strive for peace and different things we could do to make peace. Here he gives, you know, kind of two big examples for this. But if you, so basically if you want to summarize um, what he's saying here, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you to watch out for what's inside your heart. That's where the source of the murder comes from to begin with. So watch out for what's in your heart. And here are principles. Here are some initiatives that you can take that will help your heart not to get to that place where you would want to kill somebody. Okay, and so if we handle these things when they're small and when they're little, then the hatred, like a cancer, can't grow in our hearts. Because we've removed it. We've removed it from the, at the beginning. And if we can learn to do with that, if we can learn to, when we have the, the first disagreement, to strive for peace then. If when we feel that things are, are getting off track in the relationship, that we strive for peace then. That we don't wait for things to get worse. And that we don't give a place in our own minds and our hearts that we, we quickly repent when we notice our attitude and our words start to get to the raka and to the you fool. And we start to demean that other person who's also made in the image of God. When we start to do those things, we quickly repent and we seek reconciliation that as much as depends on us, we live at peace with all people. And so, you know, I have to confess this morning that there's certain points in my, at times in, in my life where I've certainly failed to follow what Jesus has asked of me here. Anybody in the room can say, you know, or that ever hears this message, can say, I've been completely innocent in all things related to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 
5, verses 21 through 26. Guilty, guilty, guilty. All of us. Certainly myself. And so what do we do then? We confess our guilt. We say, Lord, you know these situations I, I didn't handle with a sort of purity and heart, with a sort of um, meekness, with a sort of humility, with a sort of um, love that you've called me to. And so, forgive me, please. And if there's still, if there's still an opportunity to make peace with somebody, then help me to make peace with that person. If there's still an opportunity for that, Lord, show me who I need to make peace with. You'd strive for that even this week. Show me if there's any person or any, any number of people that I need to go to and strive to make peace with. Because I want to have a clean heart and clean hands and a clean mind when I go to give my offering to you. When I take the bread and the cup, I wanted to be able to do so with a clear conscience. And so, Lord, show me and, and help me. And then, and then I think this is, and this is just really key, and help me moving forward to apply these principles, to learn a different way than what my natural human flesh reverts to so quickly. Because my natural human flesh will hate my natural human flesh will say, Raka. My natural human flesh will say, you fool. But these things are contrary to the Spirit of God that lives within us. And so, God, these things aren't to have a place in, in me, so therefore, help me. Help me to approach the situations, the conflicts of life in a way that ultimately... My light will shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And may God help us toward that end. Um, It's certainly not easy because we are sinful people rubbing up against other sinful people throughout our lives. But we can learn how to do things in a way... I think that's really what I want us to understand. In all of these subjects, we don't have to live as a defeated person. Even if we made mistakes in the past, moving forward, we don't have to say, well, you know, I'm just not good at handling conflict. So therefore, you know, whatever. No, we can learn from Jesus and from his ways and move forward, you know, applying on our end the better principles. Again... I don't want to have unnecessary guilt because unnecessary guilt is when you've tried your best honestly before God. The other person is unreasonable and, you know, it's not going to be reconciled. You can't hold on to guilt, you know, for that. You know, there's also times, and I think it's necessary to give this caveat, where somebody has sinned against another person so greatly that, yes, that person can forgive but especially that person is not a believer, and even if they do become a believer, there may still have to be some boundaries there. That because of the offense of what they did was so damaging, 
that there, there cannot be, at least on this earth, the sort of reconciliation you would want and seek you know, to have. Sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not. I don't want to give an easy way out there, but I also don't want to ask someone to do something that God is not asking them to do. We want to be careful you know, with that. Um, but that being said, in most of our situations, those are the kind of the outliers. Most of our situations where we have conflict, they start over little things and can be handled when they're little things. But because of our pride and because of our unwillingness to be humble and meek, a lot of times we don't address them then or because of our fear or whatever. And so we allow them to build and grow until we've got real problems. So, And I think that that's another confession I have to make is, Lord, I've been fearful. There's been times where I've been fearful and should have addressed something early, regardless of what the consequences would be. You know, but out of fear, allow things to grow. You know, it's kind of like you fear that the relationship's going to be fractured or you'll lose it. But then by not addressing it, that guarantees that eventually it will be lost. You're just kicking the can down the street. So in our relationships, let's not kick the can down the street. Let's deal with what needs to be dealt with um, and have love and grace towards one another, as certainly we've received from our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us, God. We thank you for your help for us. Lord, we all come to you and know that we have not done everything we should do in all of our situations of conflict that many times we've been silent for too long, we've been fearful, or we have been prideful. Um, but Lord, as much as it depends on us, help us to live at peace with all people. Help us to strive for that. Cleanse us, forgive us, and help us moving forward, Lord, to... Do what your scripture says. And that we would take it so seriously, Lord. Because we know that not doing what your scripture says jeopardizes the mission much more than not being able to write a check that day. And so, Lord, please help us. Help us, Lord. In our relationships, to be loving. And Lord, please help us to fight hard against our flesh through the power of your Holy Spirit that when we're tempted to think with that anger, to think with that hatred, to dehumanize another person, Lord, that we would be convicted quickly of that and that we would move forward in a way that honors and pleases you. Lord, we know conflict is inevitable, but Lord, help us to handle it well. In your Lord Jesus, we want to glorify you in all things, even in our conflicts. And please help us to handle things appropriately, Lord, in a way that pleases you. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We so desperately need it that we remember as we take the bread and cup this morning, we see it there for us. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.